Welcome to Death by DVD. I am your host, Hank. It's like Cher, just Hank. One name, no use for a last name. We don't need a middle initial. Hank, like Cher. Remember that. This week, we're going to take a nice scenic drive into New Jersey. We're going to take an exploration to a very specific place and look at the people and talk about their lives. But before that, we are going to jump into weekly scenes. We haven't done that in a while. We haven't done a weekly scene. And because of that, I'm going to do three Isn't That Fun? A classic, something that I thought was really interesting to just check out and for right now what's going on in the world, uh, some provocative subject matter, as the rest of this show, I think, will end up being in something very, very recent. So to start it off, we have Throne of Blood from 1957 by Akira Kurosawa. And Akira Kurosawa is one of those names that you hear all the time when it comes to artsy-fartsy directors. It's always at the top of the list. You know, uh, David Lynch really loves Akira Kurosawa. And you know the others. Jean-Luc Godard, uh, Federico Fellini, Antonioni. There's a you know substantial list of those guys that you've got to know who they are. The, the most artistic directors in the world. I mean, uh... A Band of Outsiders by Jean-Luc Godard, that's one of Tarantino's favorite thing. All these big muckety-muck names that you can hear are all influenced by these other big muckety-mucks, and Akira Kurosawa is one of them. You know, it's one of Martin Scorsese's favorite directors, but a lot of the time, especially with guys like Fellini and Godard, you've got a lot of experimental things going on, and although Akira Kurosawa definitely was experimental, I think something that sets him apart from all of the big muckety-muck art names and all of these uh, big intensive things you know you've not seen this you don't know who this is uh, these are those directors you know where people yell at you in all capital letters on a forum because you haven't seen this movie or you have some inqui inquisition about it this is one of those guys but what really sets Akira Kurosawa apart from I think you know guys like Jean-Luc Godard and Fellini as mentioned is the fact his storytelling ability is uh perfect I mean, yeah, we can just use that term. It's Kurosawa. We have a get-out-of-jail-free card calling something perfect. But, you know, yes, he's an incredibly artistic director. His photography, his style is is just absolutely delightful from his early career going into the end of his career, the 60s, the 70s. Most of his work was with Toshiro Mifune, uh, this film, Throne of Blood. Guess what? It stars Toshiro Mifune. They made some of, I think, the strongest movies I guess ever made. It's not just what I think. Most people, again, this artsy fartsy shit will uh, kiss uh, Akira Kurosawa's ass. It's just kind of a quintessential thing. But his ability to tell a story is remarkable. There's just the guy could have just made a movie about uh, explosive diarrhea and it would have been two hours long and he would have managed to have made it incredibly. I guess this is going to be the word of the night. Provocative. But that was not in fact. 
the word of the night. The word of the night was carbuncle, which was never used. He would have managed to show you absolutely everything that was necessary to show you. And that's really what makes, I think, and drives his movies. And yes, the uh, artistic integrity is one a massive thing that you have to take into consideration. Again, he's a very beautiful director, but what makes and breaks a lot of it is storytelling. And something that we bring up a lot on the show is just uh, writing, characters, development, making sure everything that matters is specifically shown on the screen. And Throne of Blood is a very specific story. It is Macbeth. This is one of the many... Uh, triumphant, I feel, Shakespearean films or Shakespearean stories on film. And, you know, there's so many different things that fall into this category. You've got that ultra-beautiful 90s movie with uh, Harold Perrineau and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, the, the Romeo and Juliet film. You've got that really weird Hamlet version. You've got a neat version of um, Othello with Larry Fishburne. Uh, and then even going back, of course, you've got the classics and Olivier pictures and Ian McKellen things, but this is, I think, one of the more unique stories because it doesn't quite matter uh, where it's set. And I guess that's one of the timeless things, one of the kiss-ass things about Shakespeare is that uh, indefinitely, if you can have a story that is translated hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, you've kind of reached a level of perfection when it comes to your storytelling abilities. But uh, it's just the visuals and the capability of Kurosawa's storytelling storytelling that really makes this a, a remarkable film. And I will admit here, I've never seen it before. And I'm really not super familiar with Akira Kurosawa's work prior to this. And the last month or so of my life, I have been exploring and getting kind of deep into some Asian horror, you know, not just horror, but Asian cinema in general, starting with Kurosawa, and I've just been exploring some early Asian horror, moving into the 80s. It's a, a genre, I wouldn't even say so much a genre, I think that maybe is offensive. It's, it's you know, a whole fucking people that have a whole completely different style, but you talk about the Italians and the Germans and the Americans and the UK and everybody's different style, and I think often um, Asian cinema is really excluded, and uh, you know, not just this, not just things like Throne of Blood, and you know, anybody that is in year fucking one of film school is going to be able to talk your ear off about Kurosawa and all the crap I just said, and so much more. And the same goes for Fellini and Gutierrez and. Ah, well, who'd I say, uh, Antonioni? Yeah, just all these big names. There's just so much pretense to having. Uh, have you seen Fastbender? Can you tell me about the blah, 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 nah, about Fastbender? And it it doesn't matter. You know, you gotta intake and watch what you want to watch and enjoy whatever uh, art that has a feeling toward you. But there is just something fascinating about um, unknown cultures, and and that's one of the I think roadblocks, one of the walls that comes with Japanese or Asian, not, you know, just Japanese specific, but Asian film in general, is that there is a very different culture at hand here, and it does make things a little bit difficult to understand. But allowing yourself to, to learn and check out some Wikipedia articles and make sense of some things, you end up, uh, for me, this simple critic's opinion, falling in love with something that is completely foreign and being able to uh, intake that art 
is so much fun. And so I sat down and I started getting into Akira Kurosawa movies, which led me to realize, like, I don't know anything about Asian horror. And I do a fucking, I've done a podcast for going on 11 years about horror movies. And, you know, it's just kind of unfair to not, unfair to the audience and myself to not uh, understand something enough to enjoy the art. So, you know, uh, you got to push xenophobia away and check out something different. And I just found, personally, watching Throne of Blood, it was violent. It has some of the most exquisite scenes of cinema, uh, something that every, again, film school year one person will hear about. A beautiful scene with Tashiro Mifune of arrows just going crazy. It's actually him, very risky for death, or risky for art, death stunt work sort of thing. It's a, a very violent and stark depiction of Macbeth, as two, most of them are incredibly artistic and very uh, focused on the Shakespearean acts, uh, accentuations and aspects of the plot. And a lot of that forces, you know, we've got to make this very artistic. We've got to make this very, very beautiful. And it's Macbeth, kill everybody. It's blood. It's, it's horror. You know, we've got witches and death and murder and mayhem and mystery. Oh my, it's great. There's so much going on with this. So yeah, uh, Throne of Blood, Akira Kurosawa, kind of a, you know, okay, this isn't the way to really hook, line, and sink somebody into listening to this show. This prick fucking started it talking about New Jersey, and now he's talking about Throne of Blood, fucks this show about. But I promise at some point, uh, the three movies that I'm using for the recently seen and the entirety of this show will all have some uh, compromising points. They all make sense. I picked these for a reason, but uh, it's no cheating. I also watched these all this week. So moving on, we'll move on to a movie from 1969 who everyone involved's name I'll probably get completely incorrect. This is a Czechoslovakian film. It's directed by uh, Jaraj Herge. Again, oh man, I just don't speak Czechoslovakian. Italian names I'm going to fuck up. Every, you know what? <laughs> I'm an American. We don't do names. Well, we don't do a lot of stuff, but that's for a different show. Based on a novel by Vladislav Fuchs. So I found this one to be a real dill of a pickle. It's incredibly dark subject matter, but some of it just I found to be incredibly amusing, and I couldn't help but think that that had to be some of the point. Now, like I said, this movie comes from 1969, but it is shot like a 1920s experimental German film. It's It's got that... Uh, very beautiful, hardcore cuts, very quick cuts, and very heavy focus shots on architecture and scenery, stark black and white. I mean, it's not as crazy as something as like Metropolis or uh, Caligari, but it's definitely got an influence from German uh, 20s and 30s experimental film, which makes it, I guess, a little bit difficult to watch because so much of the movie is the inner thoughts of the lead character, which leads us to what this movie is about. It's about a man who uh, runs, or he works in a crematorium. He eventually uh, runs it, but he works in a crematorium in Czechoslovakia during the early parts of World War II. The Nazi occupation is slowly moving forward. But this guy is, uh, I don't know, he, he's a little, he's a few cans short of a six-pack, let's put it that way. And he's got this concept, which, you know is going to be an interesting take into the rest of where we're going tonight. But he's obsessed with the Dalai Lama and, and Tibet and Tibetan Buddhism and the concept of rebirth. And there's some specific notes to take here, and it is you know Tibetan Buddhism that once you return to dust, essentially your body, your bones uh, decomposing, once you return completely to dust, 
you then are now finally free and able to be uh, reincarnate and move on or move upward to the ether and to the perfection and freedom and happy nirvana of, um, you know, not existing but being energy. Getting a little deep here, I'm sorry. But this is what our lead is completely, uh, not just so much obsessed with, but in complete uh, belief of. And he's got a beautiful family. And his wife is half Jewish, and his children by that point are technically of Jewish blood. And he's completely obsessed with this idea of uh, returning people to the, to the earth, to the ether of the earth. So his work as a cremator to him is just uh, beyond pleasurable, that each day of his life he is returning someone to the other realm, to burning them, turning them to nothing. Uh, it's not entirely political, it's almost uh, insanity. Uh, not, and I'm not trying to say the stippling belief of the Buddhists is insanity, but this character is insane. And their obsession and love of death is not a necrophilic or creepy thing, but they definitely are in love with death more so than they even have an appreciation for life. And eventually, making a long story short, they get recruited by the Nazi party, which begins a fascination of the pure aspects of German blood and all of the bullshit and lies that was fed to people to, uh, you know, become a party member. And this is prior, the Nazis at this point in the movie are slowly moving into Czechoslovakia. So this is the early points of the war before the Allied nations stepped in and really uh, things went to hell in a handbasket and, you know, you can Wikipedia the rest of World War II from this point. So uh, a lot of these people in the Czech Republic, well, it wasn't the Czech Republic at the time. Ah, it doesn't matter. A lot of these people still had their freedom, and a lot of them, uh, what is something that is happening now, were, ah, it doesn't matter. You know, they're not coming after me. I'm not a Jew. I'm only half Jew. They're not coming after me. I'm not black. They're not coming after me to make a reference of what's happening right now and people's just odd inability to give a shit about something that doesn't involve fucking them. But we're not going to go into politics tonight. We're not going to go into politics tonight, I repeat. So as a forerunner being drafted into the National Socialist Germans Worker Party, the, the idea of the perfection of the, you know, Aryan is now in his head, which considerably is a problem because his wife is half Jewish, thus making his kids also Jewish. This guy, can you see where we're going here? This guy's dementia, his insanity forms, uh, you know, I've, I've just got to make things right. But his obsession with Tibetan Buddhism also gives him almost uh, an excuse to not feel bad about these things, which is truly sociopathic behavior through just uh, illusions of grandeur. But he truly believes by cremating people, he can return them to the ether, thus making everything worthwhile. So knowing that he cannot accelerate his career as a Nazi, he decides to one by one kill his wife and kids to get rid of not just their Jewishness, 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 all right. That's a tough one. So to get rid of their uh, Judaic nature and to free them into the ether realm to not be tortured by the Nazis is one aspect of things, but you can really truly think this is a, a villainous, vile, evil study in characters. The end of the movie, the end of the movie is my favorite thing uh, because I found it to be just incredibly dark. And again, when we get into New Jersey territory, it's going to get kind of dark and all of these things and more will fit and will make sense and why I picked these movies. Because, you know, essentially I give you these and then we get into the real big beef of this show. You have a whole lot of stuff to, to stimulate your mind with for this next coming week. So I'm, I'm trying here. I'm trying to give you some entertainment. 
But it's just an absolutely demented, but incredibly artistically and beautifully shown story. And it's one of those things that just ends absolutely hopelessly. And uh, like I had mentioned, my favorite thing, this ending. Oh, you have two ways, two spectrums of thinking about it. For one, he's taken off. He's too extreme for the Nazis. Or two, they're just taking him to start his own little purifying camp. Again, there's no real hope here, and it's one of those things. It's not nihilism for the sake of nihilism. It's not dark for the sake of dark, but it shows the... These two will be key words coming up later in the show. The banality and morose nature of human life. But what it truly is an exposition on is the morose nature of evil and how mundane, another word that will continue throughout the show, how mundane evil truly can be and where it starts and... Uh, how these seeds of just ignorance and, and, and venomous hate are sown that turn into incredibly violent, explosive situations as World War II and the Holocaust was. It definitely is the statement on the evil nature of the Nazi Party, Adolf Hitler, and everything above, but it also truly shows the selfishness and self-centered nature of man. So it's a wild exploration into uh, some art cinema, so fuck Akira Kurosawa, and then we move into The Cremator from 1969. Uh, I can smell my own shit. It's getting a little highfalutin. I'm sorry. And I don't mean to get highfalutin. It's not, it's not the point here. I just had some things. This is what I do. But as I've said before, film, movies, flicks, that's my favorite way of intaking art. It's my favorite form of art. All right, so let's get off our highfalutin criterion picks, and we'll move into something a little bit more recent. A little bit more recent. This movie just came out a few days ago. Becky from 2020 by Jonathan Mallott and Carrie Murnion. Sorry if I said your last name wrong. Written by Nick Morris and Ruckus Sky. That's one hell of a name, Ruckus Sky. So this is the legendary Kevin James Nazi movie. Oh, man. And I got to tell you, that's the reason I fucking saw it. That's the reason I wanted to see this movie. I checked it out the day after it came out. I was super excited for it. You always get these conversations about uh, comedic actors playing serious roles. You know, uh, every time Robin Williams had a serious role, he grew a beard. I, I feel the beard is the biggest difference. I feel it really... Eh, whatever. Kevin James grew this big-ass grizzly beard. And, uh, you know, really, when I saw previews, when I heard about this movie, I thought it was going to be... Uh, I don't know. It's Kevin James, man. I I, <laughs> I like King of Queens. I'm familiar with the guy's work and his comedy. And truly, I like Kevin James. I like where he came from. I like... Uh, I, I just, I, I, I like a can-do attitude. I really do. I really enjoy a can-do attitude, and I like all the, I, I just like Kevin James. I don't need to fucking explain to you people why I like Kevin James, but I do. But that, um, really pushed me into wanting to see this movie, but, you know, knowing who the guy is, I definitely thought there was going to be a bit more of a comedic nature to it, and my, man, oh, no, it is, eh. from the very beginning, I mean, it is ridiculous. The The very first scene of the movie shows Kevin James with uh, a, a lot of Nordic and Nazi symbols on his head, and it turns into a very extravagant scene of violence, and right off the bat, you know, okay, there's nothing to laugh at. This is not funny. There's no jokes to be found here. And what we're dealing with is some uh, prison Nazis break out of prison, and they're looking for a key, a key that was uh, unexplainably... Oh, man, I'm getting too early into it. Unexplainably left at this house, and uh, mayhem ensues. All right. I liked the movie. I did. I liked it, and I think Kevin James' performance was great. But 
I got some problems with you people. I'm sorry. I got a Frank Costanza. Uh... I got a lot of problems with you people. Now you're going to hear about it. There was absolutely no point for any of the characters to be Nazis. It didn't matter. I mean, okay, I get it. And I hate them. I do. Like, not fucking a sympathizer here. You want to make a bad guy, make him a scumfuck Nazi. And who doesn't want to see a Nazi get their head caved in? Who doesn't want to see some harm? To, uh, it doesn't matter if it's 1944 or 2020, a Nazi. You want to see it. It's fucking great. But it's sort of like invoking violence for the sake of violence and using imagery or, uh, you know, something provocative just to sell a product. Our, our villains in this, in, in this situation, Kevin James and his uh, cohorts, they are neo-Nazis, they're prison Nazis, and they're decked out with tattoos, and there is this, uh, you know, pseudo-message throughout the movie that whatever they're doing, they're doing it for the brotherhood and the greater mint of the white race, uh, whatever. But there's no characters. There's no reason for them to be Nazis. They could have been uh, Texas chainsawing mutant massacring uh, star beasts. It, it just doesn't matter. They could have been demons, they could have been monsters, they could have been the Wicked Witch of the West. It absolutely had no bearing on the rest of the movie. And, like I said, I really do enjoy seeing a Nazi get fucked up, and that's all good and fine, but you're invoking such strong imagery without uh, a lot of purpose, a lot of pretense, or, or, or any... It's not even pretense, there's just not a lot of point. There wasn't anything... Uh, outside of a pseudo uh, Derek Vineyard-ish speech about dog breeding and why you have to breed with certain races. And outside of that, there wasn't anything that was incredibly terrifying. Now, Kevin James was terrifying. His performance is fine. It, it was totally nothing you're ever going to see, or not, uh, who knows what, uh, it's totally nothing that you've seen before from Kevin James. It's just great. The gore, practical effects, fantastic. There were multiple times that I just kind of wanted to clap. You know, we've discussed before with Green Room, when I first saw that in theaters, there was a handful of scenes that made me go, whoa, and I, had, I literally, I had to stand up. I, I just got taken aback and got this anxiety attack because of what was going on. Not the same thing here. Not going to compare these two and say that they're similar beasts, but there is some gore that was on that level of, like, you wanted to clap. Like, it was a Frank Henenlotter thing. Like, oh! Like, you know, in, a, in, in, in brain damage, when he's pulling Elmer out of his head. and Elmer, I'm sorry. A-L-Y-M-E-R. It's not Elmer, it's Almer. Uh, it's just that blood-squirting scene and how terrific and over-the-top it was. Just the decadence of violence. There's a lot of decadent violence within Becky. But like I was saying, there's no reason or uh, animosity. You know, there needs to be some tension. There needs to be some reason that uh, these Nazis are doing whatever they're doing. And there's this little uh, plot about them looking for a key. Nothing is accentuated upon. Nothing's really delved into. You also have a lot of cool ideas with... Uh, uh, the Kevin James character is a pseudo-father to these other Nazis, and he's adopted them, but two of our characters just randomly show up. They weren't during, you know... Again, this is a brand new movie. I don't want to spoil it too much. But there is a lot of incoherent writing, and unfortunately a more polished product, to kind of surmise where my rant is going, would have really, really helped this. I think it's a wonderful addition to horror i think it's great kevin james is joining this community because he's a funny guy fuck you i don't care what you have to say i like kevin james and he's funny as shit and i some bringing something to the table your ability to be a pratt and fall comedy guy and then do something horrific 
I love it. I love when uh, comedic actors can transition and move into something a little bit more serious. And Kevin James really, he turned the tables here. And it was a great, strong performance. I recommend it. I want you to see it. I want you to see this more than The Cremator. And uh, Well, that's not true. That's a really good movie. I'm sorry. Check out The Cremator. But fuck it. If you never watch an Akira Kurosawa movie in your goddamn life, please at least see Becky. Because... Because... It's something new, but it's fucking fun, man. It really was, and it, it, you you can't you can hate the Nazis all you want. Just it doesn't matter, okay? Just dismantle and dismiss everything I said, because uh, sure, me, I'm a picky guy. I'm a critic. This is a show about criticism and reviewing things. I wanted a little bit more, but at the same time, it was still a fun ride. Now you can pick anything to pieces, and that's the goddamn point of doing things, and why people like Roger Ebert and whatever. Why people read Deep Red, Fangoria, it doesn't matter. But truly for yourself, uh, watch Becky. I don't want to give any spoilers or anything too funky away, but I really just feel there was a lack of any true character development. You're given an African-American character that I think was just put into the movie because it was a visual against the Germanic uh, Nordic imagery and the swastikas and the scumfuck Nazi imagery. So there was a stark difference between those characters but otherwise I don't think it mattered I don't think it mattered that the villains were Nazis or that there was an African American or or, uh, none of the characters had any give a shit and it's kind of like when you hear about how Alien was written that it didn't matter no one was male or female there weren't sexes picked that came down to eventually what happened with casting if you were to read the idea of Becky and strip away the Nazi part of it it really wouldn't matter I mean it would be something just like I don't know, any other home invasion film. It wouldn't have had any flavor. And unfortunately, what gives it the spice is that uh, scumfuck Nazi part. And you just wanted something dug more into that. You unfortunately needed a little bit more to hate. And that's weird to say because nothing should be more hateable and more easy to hate than a scumfucking Nazi. So that's what I watched this week. Some art and some Kevin James. I, I definitely ask... Watch Becky. It's worth it. It's worth the five ninety nine. So now I guess we're trucking into New Jersey. We gotta get some Bruce Springsteen on. We're driving into New Jersey. Actually, you know what? No, we don't want to get sued. We're not gonna put any Bruce Springsteen on. Dead air. Dead quiet air. So we're heading into New Jersey on account of a guy named Greg Goodsell, one of my favorite writers. Legendary deep red writer Greg Goodsell has you know written about film for what maybe forty years, forty plus years, and absolutely everything that man has written is solid gold. One of the things that I truly love about Greg Goodsell, and I think what attracted him to me is it's not so much that he's sardonic, but Greg definitely tells you how it is. He there's no bullshit. The man does not write lies, and when he tells you something's cheap, it's cheap. If he tells you something's tacky, it's tacky. But what Greg Goodsell had to tell me about this movie is that it was weird, and that was a statement upon itself from this man. And I've read him for years. I've read him since I was an early teenager. I mean, he's written vastly. He's very easy to find, uh, the legendary writing of Greg Goodsell. But when this man said weird to me, that kind of made me think, weird? I mean, this guy's seen everything, and he's saying, this is weird. So I hunted down a copy of it, a little movie from 2009, written and directed by Matthew Garrett, called Morris County. Morris County takes place, of course, within the county in New Jersey, about 30 minutes west of New York City. 
And I, that really isn't a principal point of what's going on here. And uh, honestly, I think Morris County ended up becoming the title because the director thought it sounded a bit like morose. And it wasn't uh, an intentional thing. It's an anthology film. Three segments. And all of these things have a connection. And usually for me, it's a damning thing to do an anthology film without a wraparound. But the connection between these three movies, I think, truly makes up for the lack of, you know, your Crypt Keeper or whatever creep showish idea generally is pushed into a anthology film for the wraparound. Another one of the things that drew me to Morris County is that it was released by Unearthed Films. And I don't know if you guys have heard about them, but Unearthed Films is responsible for the American Guinea Pig series. A guy named Stephen Biru runs them, who uh, wrote and directed several of the American Guinea Pig films. I believe he did Bouquet of Blood and Guts and Songs of Solomon, which stars the legendary Jim Van Beber and Scott Gabby of Ultraviolet Magazine. Equally legendary. Let's not sleep on the Scott Gabby. He also is in Bouquet of Blood and Guts, Scott. <laughs> you know what? Jim is, too. So you, you got a, a double whammy of both of those guys. Uh, I, I think Scott Gabby is one hell of a dude. Very fond of him. But I definitely have a big interest in unearthed films, and it's something that I've discussed before and will probably bring up on this show, is violence for the sake of violence. And I don't know. I don't condone it. I don't like it. I think it makes products boring and bland. And something I've noticed uh, on the few unearthed films that I have found and I have sat down and watched... There certainly is none of that. Now, some of them are extravagantly violent. Definitely, the American guinea pig films are just a ballet of baffling violence. And some of it, sure, is over the top. But it's I use a lot of things as my whipping boy. But tonight, we'll use Chaz Balance whipping boy, Nacho Saturday's Aftermath. It's no Aftermath, a movie that I will agree with Chaz. I don't think I've ever said how I feel about this. I bring up regularly what uh, Chaz Ballin had to say about it, but I agree with him fully. I think it's, I don't know, it's pointless. I mean, it's very pretty, it's articulate, and it looks nice, but it, it has no meaning. And what I've noticed with what I have traversed into the Unearthed catalog is that there is a point to almost everything, and that has to come down to Steve Biru. His appreciation for art is exquisite, and this man definitely is showing and putting a lot of things on his label that otherwise I don't think people would take the time to check out. You would look at it and think of it as some ultra-violent gore piece and that it wouldn't have any artistic integrity, but I'm here to tell you that that is incorrect. Even something like the American Guinea Pig series, my favorite so far is Sacrifice, God damn, man, that movie got to me. That made me feel heartbroken, but it was amazing, and God, it's just, oh, it's so violent, man. It really, it's out there, and there were some visuals in that film that just really, you know, I, I there's no sitting and screwing around on your phone when you're watching something like that. Another title from On Earth that I thought was, you know, specifically beautiful was Red Crocodile, a film that I've wanted to see for quite some time, and I finally bought a copy of it, and it was nothing uh, like I expected it to be. I thought it was going to be just, you know, just violence. I just thought it was going to be a junkie on a rampage, and he's rotting. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of the synthetic drug crocodile, but over in Russia, almost everything's absolutely illegal, so synthetic heroin, synthetic morphine is made in... Uh, a horrible substance, you know, somewhat like people making meth in the United States, but this causes you to almost instantly rot, and this movie is circled around a person's destructive decay into uh, the abyss of drugs, and it just, it was beautiful. It was just a very uncomfortable, very, very beautiful, horrifying movie. 
But there definitely is something to be seen with unearthed films. Direct your attention to them. Go check out the website. Find Stephen Biru on Facebook. Look into these things. I'm going to try and come back more regularly and talk to you about some more of my unearthed acquisitions. But this was at the top of my list. On the good words of Greg Goodsell, it's pretty weird. I had to jump into this. Written and directed by Matthew Garrett, the production started in 2005. And initially it was a short film called Ellie and everything came afterwards from that. The last part of the movie was attempted to be shot next and was just going to be released as a short on its own. It was a cursed kind of situation. Things didn't go through the right way and that led to Morris County end up being the final product. Three horrific and sad looks into the life of middle America. What we're dealing with is this town in New Jersey, Morris County, and these stories are all supposedly taking place inside of Morris County. And The facts don't really matter here. The names of the towns don't quite exist, but that doesn't matter. All three of these stories are connected by the mundane banality of human life, and that's what I thought was almost the, the, the greatest part. It made up for not having the Crypt Keeper wraparound or whatever shtick that you were going to throw normally into the anthology movie to make people watch it. It worked on its own accord by dealing with the nature of human life and something that people regularly don't want to deal with or, I guess, discuss when it comes to human life is death. These are two things that, without a doubt, are going to happen to absolutely everybody, and it's it's mundane. I mean, you think of God or whatever religion you are, we'll just say for all intents and purposes, the universe. If there's some omnipotent idea, if there's some omnipotent deity above us that is watching absolutely everything, then they're absolutely used to death. It's something that happens to everything. Trees, bugs, the earth, stars, absolutely everything dies. It's mundane. It's something that we as people who are affected by life and death completely differently as we all have free will have never been able to come to terms with. No one looks at death as they look at life. Life is looked at with, you have this one chance, and look at babies being born, and they have their whole lives ahead of them, and you've got this idea of growth and love and positivity and health when it comes to life, but when people think of death, they always think of the most dismal, darkest reaches of their mind and how negative and awful it is, but all of these things are one and the same. In the greater sense of a big picture, looking at something like stars, by the time you're dead, that same star you've looked at every day of your life is still going to be there, but eventually it too will die and everything too will return to dust, taking us back to the cremator, that whole uh, Tibetan Buddhist idea of once you return to dust, you can truly return back to the ether realm and the deeper parts of the universe and be free or be reborn or reincarnation. That's something for a completely different show that we don't need to get too deep into tonight. But the uh, morose nature of death. People just don't want to deal with it. They don't want to talk about it. And I get that. I do too. It, it, it's terrifying, the idea of the big nothing, the void, the uh, you know the Nietzsche void of looking into it and it looking back. But when you're dead, you're just energy, right? I mean, it doesn't so much matter. And in the long-term spectrum of all of these things, death is just as natural and uh, normal as life. There's not a real big difference between it. Some people have very short existences. Some people have very long existences. Looking at you, Kirk Douglas. But it doesn't matter because everything shares that same energy. I mean, a bug to a baby to a 108-year-old, all its energy. I mean, that really breaking things down 
is what a soul is. It's that undeniable, undestructible force of energy. And that's what connects everything in Morris County, is the mundane aspects of life and death. And it truly is natural and normal, but the way people perceive both of those things, whether it be life or death, is truly what causes all the predicaments and all the problems and all the hiccups and upsets in our lives because it's perception and that's really where we're getting into the fun part it's the perception of of love and life and happiness or putting on a smile and all of these things all of these things and more truly are just absolutely mundane and boring and they're not original they're just it's it's all banality it's just the same spectrum that everyone feels and when you feel it you feel this crushing sense of anxiety and like the whole world is coming down upon you but it's something some farmer felt four fucking thousand years ago in a chinese village i mean all of us connective with energy all of us are living through this weird uh motion and it's kind of boring everything no matter how horrifying the soap opera aspect of whatever crime show about serial killers you just watched it's all boring it's all been done before. It's all been done before, and it's the spectrum of connecting how it's all been done before and how horrifying even the most normal things can be and the most uh, outstretched things can be. Does that, does that make sense? No? Maybe I could do it in Spanish. So, life and death. It's boring. It's all boring. It's just the perspective, the perception... You know, everybody has ideas and ideals. Everyone has this picture in their head of how things are going to be. And more often than not, it never turns out that way. And this is what the pretense and I feel the setting is for these three tales and their interconnection. We all have this idea, this picture, this little painting of how things are actually going to be. And it never is. It just doesn't turn out that way. But there is cause and effect, the butterfly wave. You know, if a butterfly flaps its arms in South Korea, by the time it reaches Mexico, it's going to be a tidal wave. All right, the geography was fucked with that. Uh, don't pay attention to that. But you get my point. You're following the drift. The first part of the story is called Ellie. It's about a girl named Ellie. And instantly, the first five minutes are, are incredibly, you know you're uncomfortable. You know that there is nothing fun that is happening about this. You've got a, a, a high schooler that is confronted by her mother. Are you smoking? Is something wrong? You're instantly allowed to know that there is something unfortunate happening in this child's life. You know, maybe they're a bit counterculture and they've been listening to the Nirvana and they're edgy. But the more you get into things, she instantly tries to smoke and you see that she can't. She's not a, a formative smoker. The second venture, she wants to get alcohol. She goes to a liquor store and ends up meeting an absolute scumbag and a sort of nice guy, maybe a white knight scenario, and she offers to blow them for some whiskey. And then later, she meets with some Heshers and the average stoners to party, and all of this seems like just very uncomfortable scenarios shoved into your face. You, for one have the understanding that this is a youth, this is somebody under 18, you are watching them smoke and drink, and there's a lot of provocative sexual aspects of things, and you, you're generally uncomfortable. You don't really understand. You've got a gist. There's a seed planted in your mind that I think you can easily let grow, but you've got, 
more or less than anything a suggestive nature of what's happening and this short finally goes into overdrive where our character ellie is getting promiscuous with another boy after you know drinking smoking some pot hanging out in the woods you remember hanging out in the woods listening to slayer getting fingered uh not everybody, I, I guess, is going to relate to that one. But she's bleeding. This deeply angers the boy, and he marks her, he smacks her in the face, and covers her with her own blood. And finally, we start understanding where things are going as she retreats back to a uh, Christian youth council meeting going on at a nearby house and you finally oh something's a little bit more heinous here it's not just i don't want to water things down i think there is a clear definitive point even with what i've been discussing from the moment you begin watching this to where we get to this point we are given an understanding that this character obviously has something that you know i don't want to give it the fuck away but ah shit i'm gonna have to she obviously is pregnant she's trying to miscarry so we get to this scene and you get a little bit of confusion because i think you're given this representation of christianity as a you know a, a, a safety like you've got a day of the woman kind of thing here camille keaton i spit on your grave she's going to get help and that's the idea you're given but again you know any masculine white cis male idea in in the story so far has been abusive and completely hurtful to ellie so she goes to you know this temple, I guess you could say, after being marked. And immediately you realize where you're getting into this. She's been sexually abused, but it's not just on a, a, a you know, friend-to-friend -friend level that this is the youth pastor. This is somebody in a position of power that has taken advantage of her and refuses to do anything about it, refuses to step up and make this better. And with what you've already been presented and seen at the desperation and the hurt and the pain that this character, Ellie, is already going through, she finally snaps... Here's where we get into the spoilers. She kills the guy. I mean, this is your Camille Keaton scene. It's a great scene of blood. You finally got revenge. You feel a little bit of achievement and pride for the character. But what connects all of these things? What did I just rant and rave about? The mundane nature of life and death. So we're not off the hook yet? Oh no. And I'm sorry. Maybe I'm a sick fuck, but... I thought this is where maybe a I Love Lucy-style laugh track should have been placed into this. She goes home and she has the miscarriage. So she killed the fucking guy, she got her revenge, and then she has the miscarriage. So, would all of these things have happened if not? Who knows? You, you have just this uh, cynical, sardonic, almost nasty little laugh at the end of that because it's just so upsetting. Nobody's happy. No one's happy. And that brings us back to the banality and sardonic morose blah 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 nature of life because is anybody fucking happy everybody has some gripe and everybody has some stepping stool well if it wasn't for this i gotta do this well i've got this you don't understand how hard it is for me because i've got this and that's just such a boring fucking problem all humans have nobody knows just how it looks through other people's eyes. Nobody knows what you're thinking, and you don't know what the person across the room is thinking, but nobody ever wants to come to those quality terms of realizing that we are all indifferent. We are all not the same, and all of us have free will and different emotions and different thoughts. So when you say something so fucking stupid as, well, you don't know how hard it is, or you don't know what it's like doing this, ah, nobody else does. Just because you're going through something, 
doesn't mean that you're any different from anybody else because everybody goes through something absolutely differently except uh, the, the, the great beyond, the ether, the omnipotent god. Uh, I don't know. You know, we could just keep naming deities, but you get the idea. The only thing that doesn't care about death is the universe because it's already adjusted to it. Everything fucking dies, you know? And it's not... Uh, some negative nihilistic fucking, oh, you know, God is dead and we killed him bullshit. It should be almost uh, embraced. Yes, everything dies. The trees, butterflies. We'll get to butterflies later. Everything. You know, even uh, inanimate objects have a lifespan. Your computer, the microphone I'm using right now, it's got a lifespan. Things break down. They die. They return to dust, blah, blah, blah. We can get... Back to Tibetan Buddhism if we want to, but I'm just trying to provoke something. You know, I'm just trying to let you realize that it's not a bad thing. It's not like, ooh, scary, Michael Myers, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. No, everybody will. You probably will die uh, in bed or, you know, old with dementia or, I, you know, I okay. Now it's getting a little negative and not comforting, but everybody dies, right? That's the whole connection. So... Everyone feels completely different. Everybody has a different aspect. Everybody has a different perspective. Everybody has a different thought. And this is where we get into, uh, to me, this is my favorite uh, segment of the film. I don't think the director cares for this one that much from, from what I've uh, heard and been able to find. Uh, I, th I think the, the last segment is everyone's absolute favorite. The first one, Ellie, is the most shocking to people. But I really, really enjoyed this. It's called The Family Reuben. And, you know, all this ranting and everything I was just getting into is, is where we're going to transition here. I'll say the first two segments definitely have something in common with a little bit of a switcheroo. At the beginning of both of them, you're given a bit of a misdirection as to what's going to happen. And uh, I guess we can bring this up. I hate this term. I really do. Uh, but this movie has that Lynchian quality to it, but not in the essence of bullshit art that doesn't make sense or you have to question it or you have to learn about fucking Tibetan Buddhism and transcendental meditation to understand it. But one of the things that Lynch really enjoys focusing on is the, uh, as he likes to say when he was younger, he saw this tree that, you know, ants were completely crawling up and it was covered in sap and it was dark and it was dirty. And he realized that there is this dark, dirty underbelly. There's a dark, dirty underbelly to the world. Every American town has something dark inside of it. Obviously, Twin Peaks, Laura Palmer, yada, 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 all that stuff. So there is that uh, David Lynch quality. Did you like that? I'm going to have to. St Did you like that David Lynch impersonation? But it has that reaching quality to it, which I think is something that really can be appreciated when you dive back into the mundane, banality, boring, morose aspects of life. Because all of that, like, I don't give a fuck how weird Twin Peaks is, but there is a representation of what Lynch tries to, to say. You know, there's a dark, seedy underbelly to absolutely everything, which comes to, you know, the title of this movie, Morris County. I don't I don't know what it was originally going to be called. Uh, it initially didn't even start off to be a anthology film, but Morris County ended up being the title. The director is from New Jersey. So he he is a Jersey local, but they picked the title. He picked the title cuz it sounded like morose, which brings us back to that fucking word that I keep using, morose, and that's, you know, it's so hard trying to preach. It's I'm not trying to be negative. I'm not a negative crook. 
But uh, there's just something unique about people's inability to just cope with uh, not existing, I guess. Not doing anything or being something. You know, you've got, oh God. See, I can't get into this because this comes back later and I'm just getting way too ahead of myself. All right, the second segment. So you've got the misdirection again starting into this. It instantly seems like a very deceitful marriage and this husband's being cheated on. And, oh, what a bitch wife. It's always the woman, right? It's always the woman that's the bitch. But wait, not this time. And this delves into a lot deeper than just life and death. This has uh, the mundane aspects of what if and all those questions that we have, because everyone has a different version of themselves inside. There's a version of you that no one knows. There's a version of you that you perceive yourself to be, but absolutely nobody knows it. You think you might be a certain way, but other people, five different people, have five different versions of you. You truly cannot tell who you are through anybody else's eyes. You've lived uh, differently for everybody. You could have touched people differently. You could have harmed people differently. You have absolutely no concept of what you really have done. And when you look at yourself and you look at who you are and the things that you are not willing to let other people know, you really start getting into some interesting stuff that you can dig up. And yeah, everybody has skeletons in their closet, but sometimes the skeletons are still alive, uh, which is a weird euphemism. But what we're moving into here is a marital problem. And it begins with a family going to Temple. I think it was Pratt Memorial Chapel where the director's grandfather had been interned about six months beforehand. Apparently he wasn't very close, but uh, later on in this segment there is some uh, interesting pornography that's shown. And while they were using the space to shoot in the chapel, they were shooting some fake gay porn. and It's kind of interesting. So, uh, even giving that away, maybe you know where we're getting into. The family leaves church, and the wife has to stop and talk to her, uh, what is it, w would it be a cuckold, or a, what, what's a mistress for a guy? A mister? That doesn't sound sexy. Well, she's, I guess that's what we're going to have to go with. So she goes and visits her mister, and you can see the pensive nature and the anger of the husband. And what, long story short, we find out is this man is a homosexual, his wife is aware of it. They have an arrangement. She's allowed to, uh, allowed. What an awful thing to say. She has decided to have her own life, not a matter of fucking allowance, like marriage is a, a slave ring and you have to be allowed to do things. She decides to have her own life and her own love and to move forward as they keep the secret because you have to look at life. Just because you feel something doesn't mean it can happen. Just because you are something doesn't mean that you are allowed to let it out. Uh, there are all these stipulations and rules and anxiety that each person puts onto themselves. And it's not always themselves. You have family. You have work. You have uh, a moral code of bullshit ethics that it's laid down onto you because of your community. And you're just not allowed to be what you want to be. And it is... Uh, pushed inside of you until it comes out at the worst moments. And this is a definite provocative look at the worst moments of people finally coming out and the struggle of somebody trying to keep something inside of themselves. This is something that the director, Matthew Garrett, says is the most personal of the entire movie. And it has absolutely nothing to do with being a homosexual. It's what is repressed inside of you. And again, you know, touching upon life and death, uh, even the fear of death is something most people have completely repressed and won't deal with inside of themselves. So this gentleman is uh, essentially living uh, this false lie. But when he is confronted by his wife who has had enough and thinks things need to be dealt with and changed, 
he immediately is, you know, well, we can't. I love you. We can't do this. I, I we, you know, he tries to kiss her. He is overflowed with emotions and how he feels without realizing the problems, which leads to one of my favorite scenes in the movie I thought was hysterical. His wife confronts him and tells him we can't do this. You know, there's we, we just can't do this. And, oh, you know what? I forgot to mention, throughout this entire fucking thing, you're shown that the kid is, uh, they have a child, and he's a little weird, twisted bastard. He's torturing rats, he likes to skin rabbits, he's got a jar of weird dead stuff under his bed, so obviously this child has been afflicted by the lack of communication that these parents have had, which has nothing to do with being a homosexual. It's the fact that the father has something else going on that he's repressing that is affecting their relationship, obviously straining it, uh, destroying the communication between the child. And in this situation, it's a little bit of like a Jeffrey Dahmer thing. You know, he's uh, killing bunnies. A little bit of a weirdo. Definitely not going in the right direction. We can say that. So the father, favorite scene here, he decides, fuck it, I'm going to drink some scotch and shoot myself. And he starts, he puts a gun in his mouth, is pounding down booze. The wife knocks on the door. He shoots erect and starts fucking with the male and is just standing there. Uh, yeah. It's just such a, a weird comedic scene that is played uh, eloquently with uh, just sadness. This guy's about to shoot himself, and suddenly you're laughing like it's Chevy Chase doing the entire thing. Which just, again, I don't know if I've, I, I say again, but I don't know if I've brought this up. This is certainly an independent, and I guess you could call underground film. The only feature length by director Matthew Garrett. But it's, it's shot adequately. And I mean, I don't mean that in a sense of, it's adequate. I don't mean that as it's not good or it's bad. Adequate is, is wonderful, especially when you're dealing with something independent. You're used to assholes running around on their iPhones. This was shot very articulately. Beyond adequate, we'll, we'll say articulate. But especially what I, I had a lot of passion for was this specific segment and how it was dealt with. I believe it was the first time that director Matthew Garrett had used a full crew and had a lot of things at his hand and a lot of ability at his hand they had a lot of locations they shot at a family house they used animals they had a kid a lot of big no-nos when you're doing not even just indie anything in general but it ends up just uh, it ends up again as just a beautiful display of violence uh, it's very chaotic the, the it's painful you can understand i think on a human aspect, the struggle that our lead character is going through. And the end of this is just a cataclysmic display of sadness. It's like a meteor of sadness and hate and uh, pain, all just coming down on top of you. But it, again, it's like a little bit of a laugh track could have been added in. It's just cynic and sardonic enough that it manages to have a very, very black comic nature to it. And there's a lot of different aspects, a lot of things I'm going to be in, uh, I think end up leaving out about this segment, but it just, this is the, the most fully layered to me. I think that out of this entire production, Morris County, that this was the onion. This had a great deal of layers. The characters all were very well rounded. You instantly get a sense of their pain and their suffering. You're given a great, uh, just look into the chaotic struggle of our lead character's life and how he is trying to deal with who he is and also hiding who he is and the anger and the pain that is masked behind all of that. And then, like I said, just a meteor strikes right into you with the ending because you get just a murder, a suicide, and then, and then you get, I don't know, I, I, 
It's not an M. Night Shyamalan twist. I hate saying that because that's just trashy. Nobody wants to be compared to M. Night Shyamalan. But you've got this, like, rabbit hole at the end. It can go into two different directions. You're allowed to believe absolutely two different things. And that's something that I really think is unique with Matthew Garrett, not just with Morris County. We'll talk about this at the end of the show. But he has a, an additional short film that was not included in this. I believe it was done in 2010 after uh, Morris County had been released. And it just seems like a theme of questioning and leaving a lot up to you as the viewer and the uh, intaker of art. But at the same time, it's just very cynical. He's a very cynical artist, but there is a lot of beauty behind that. It's not your, uh, you know, general frowny face. It's not a fart noise. There is some enchanting nature to being a cynic because it constantly makes you ask questions and if you're questioning something you're always learning something the more you question the more you're going to learn from the questions you're asking right but the end of the family reuben i think really is what made this my favorite segment it's a heartache it's very painful to watch it's not comfortable and i mentioned that with the first segment ellie none of this is comfortable the very first five minutes of this movie allow you to know ooh. I shouldn't, I maybe need to watch this alone. You know, check this out before you show your girlfriend. If you sit down and watch this with your mom, she might get a little uncomfortable. But isn't that the point? I mean, exploitation, uh, horror, genre films. And I don't want to call this a genre film. I don't want to call this even an exploitation film. I don't want to say, uh, I don't want to shove this into a category or a corner because I don't really know a lot about the, the writer and director. I'm definitely interested in learning more about him. I believe... He worked for Troma for a while, and that's something you're starting to hear more and more of. Troma is, you know, the, the Roger Corman, the H.G. Lewis of our generation. Some of the best, most talented guys started out busting ass for Lloyd. Uh, you know, and a lot of people don't like Lloyd Kaufman. A lot of people don't like what Troma does and how they operate, but I truly see it in my mind's eye as something similar to that. You got guys like James Gunn and guys like Matthew Garrett, that they work, they intern, they learn, and they come back out of it, and they make something like Morris County, or, you know, for James Gunn. Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Slither. Stuff. Content. The family Reuben ends with a devastating final draw that leads you into two conclusions. Uh, something that I've heard the director say he feels personally you're allowed to believe either or there are two uh, perspectives to what your thoughts are on how this tale ends and i'm trying not to spoil too much I, I told you what happens with ellie but my favorite segment i want you to watch i want you to find this i want you to find morris county so i'm not going to tell you about it but i will say what my thought is on the ending now there are two perspectives one of which the character at hand, who I'm trying not to spoil, feels that they are done with what they're doing. Then there's an aspect that that character has realized they've graduated and is ready to move on to something else. And that is where I was led to believe. That's where my thought process went that this specific character, by the end of this horrific, heartbreaking tale of events, realized they can graduate and move on to something much more destructive. But that again takes us back to what I was raving about earlier perception idea ideals the pictures that all of us have in our heads that's something that is relevant when you're watching a movie sometimes you're watching something and you have this idea you know this is what's going to be it's what's going to happen and it absolutely is nothing what you thought it was going to be 
It's the same thing with real life. That's all it is. All real life is, is a movie. The shots, the scenes, it's all the same thing. Rewinding, slow-mo, fast-forward, it's all a fucking movie. It's your perception of it. And what matters is you recognizing and realizing if you watch a movie, somebody else watched that same movie but saw something completely differently than you. So that is the same with reality. Dig that. Ooh. We're getting weird on this episode, aren't we? Alright, moving into part three and the final chapter of Morris County. I had to stop myself earlier because I was getting into this a little bit too much. This is the fan favorite. This is what everybody really likes about Morris County. It's on the cover of the movie. It's what everybody majorly talks about. And uh, it definitely, <laughs> it's hard to say this, it's the lightest of all the stories. It is the most comedic, I feel, of all the stories. It's called Elmer and Iris. Elmer and Iris brings up something a little bit different from the otherwise sexual and uh, violent nature. Uh, and, you know, it's just a word we've been using tonight. But definitely the first two were much more provocative than Elmer and Iris. But what we're dealing with here with Elmer and Iris is something that isn't really heavily addressed anymore. And, you know, we deal with racism and sexism and we have all these terms that we are very well aware with. But a lot of people don't recognize and think about ageism. And it's something interesting because especially in our time of current hectic political issues, a lot of the older generation is considered to be quite racist. And it's one of those things you hear all the time. Well, that's how they were raised. And you expect, oh, well, they need to change because I, I changed and I thought of things. But truly, no, that's how people were raised and things were just, the world is different. The world is different every five years, you know, from I guess I'm an elder millennial. But the other host of this show is uh, Generation X, and our lives were completely different. We are separated by 10 years, and those 10 years are monumental, so imagine 60 years. Imagine a difference. Imagine somebody born in the 1930s and how they're dealing with reality as it is right now. It's probably more like Blade Runner to them than you would ever think. But that's something that is always focused on, the beliefs, the actions of these people. What we don't think about is the memories. And <laughs> let's just take it back to Blade Runner. All these things lost, like teardrops in rain, that beautiful Rutger Hauer soliloquy. Really, though, these people, uh, these people, uh, the elder, they all... <laughs> The elders, dun, dun, dun. Uh, we're not talking about some mystical tribe here. But the older generation, well, it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter if you're from the Ukraine listening to this or the United States. But the older generation, they all have these memories and these concepts and their daily life. Look at you and, and when you lay in bed and have anxiety before you fall asleep and you're thinking about something that happened when you were 15. Okay, so you, 25-year-old, imagine being 90 and thinking back of all of these things, you have these pictures, these scenes in your head, these ideals, these ideas, these plays of how things could have been, would have been, should have been. And no one can take or change those to you, which again resorts us back to, you don't know how you look through other people's eyes. And when you're dealing with somebody that comes from this generation where you're told, this is the job you get and you work it till you die, you get married, if you're miserable, you deal with it, you have kids, this is what you do, this is how you're a productive member of society, this is how you act, this is what you do, this is your, you know, existence. It, it wasn't much of a life. I mean, a lot of these people were just, you know, beaten over the head, this is what you gotta do, this is existence. You go work every single day at the same job, and then you come home and you just deal with it. 
this is introducing us and moving us into Elmer and Iris because that's truly what we're dealing with here is it's a story of an older couple that comes from that generation of, you know, I worked the same job, I've had the same job for 45 years, and now what's happening to, you know, the older generation that has worked these jobs that can't use computers, they don't know how to keep up with technology, they're not fervently attached to Twitter and Snapchat and every single piece of media up their ass. You know, they don't have Videodrome attached to their head. So they're getting fired, they're getting laid off, they're getting pushed away because they're not needed, which is ageism, and they're being forced uh, to dwell into uh, the big nothing. You know, what was it in the never-ending story, the big sadness that was uh, enveloping everyone and destroying the world, the great nothing, you know? And that's where we push these people. Go home, watch TV. But how does somebody that has spent 70 years working every day of their life, because that's what they've been told is the necessity, what they've been taught, what's in their head, their mentality, this is what I have to do to provide. This is who I am. I'm a worker. I'm a hard worker. I'm a hardworking American. What do they do when you say, well, you can't work anymore, you're useless? There's no real option. So what happens here is Iris has been working presumably her entire life in the same field, doing the same thing and until recently has been adequate and doing her job. And she's laid off because time is changing and technology is changing and it's just not the way the world is anymore. And her only uh, life now is going home to her husband, Elmer. And Elmer is a non-responsive, dare I say, douchebag. He doesn't seem to care. You look at, and this is something on the note of production, you look at the house, you look at the set, you can see it's well-lived. You can see it's very well cared for. You can see that Iris is somebody that wakes up every day and makes breakfast and lunch and dinner and cleans and does absolutely everything to make sure that Elmer has a peaceful existence. It seems like, from what we're allowed to see through Matthew Garrett's vision, is these people enjoy watching television together. So Elmer loves TV. He's kind of a dick. He doesn't ask his wife how she is. He doesn't thank her for dinner. He has nothing. He has really nothing to offer as to where Iris had her job and a, a feeling of hope and, and responsibility and love. At least I was needed at work. At least somebody appreciated me. She's finally succumbed to coming home and dealing with this situation. And what does she do the best? The best she can. The best anyone can. And that's generally what... Uh, I think is the human nature aspect of this is when you're uh, forced into a stressful situation or something not great, you do the best you can. I, I like to think, at least for me, this humble critic, that when I'm forced into doing something, I will attempt to do it the best I can because I don't want to leave a shitty mark. I don't want to do a half-assed job when I could put a whole ass into it. I feel that's Iris. She's just trying to get through, just trying to be positive, but what happens the first fucking day she's off? Elmer dies. Elmer dies on the couch watching his beloved television. And there's no hope. Like, you already are established. Everything sucks. The only thing that gave Iris a little bit of freedom is gone. And now she is stuck in this realm of mundane and banal and morose existence. Just going to keep saying those words over and over again, because guess what? That's what we're all stuck in. But there's going to be a wrapping up point about all that. So hold on. Bear with me. She's stuck. So she doesn't do anything about it. She just lets him sit, man. She just lets Elmer sit on the couch as he rots and decays, and she watches television. At one point, she attempts to get her job back, which provokes her boss to realize that, well, I am a human, and we did just kind of cancel her. We need to go check on her. And eventually the 
rest of this movie unfolds into a dramatic, somewhat hysterical, nowhere near as chaotic as the last two. But the in-between is really the joyous part, and I think where a lot of the uh, enjoyment from most audience would come from. The decay of Elmer is rather exquisite and is just fantastic. Eric Franson plays the role. You might remember him from the Colbert Rapport. He was a regular. He was the German ambassador. He's a banjo player. He was also in the SNL band, apparently, for quite some time. The first six days of Elmer's decomposition is the actual actor. And some of the fun is really watching that. It's just the guy. The performance is kind of ridiculous. There's no dialogue, and he had to play dead. And that's what the tryouts for this actor was. Older gentlemen come in, pretend to be dead, try not move your face. But watching this guy and knowing until, obviously, on the sixth day, he becomes a you know, rotting pile of corpse goo, and it's a dummy, it's a puppet. But it's definitely of note, the performance, just knowing that that's a guy just sitting there. And as we transition through him rotting, you definitely get to see the love that his wife had for him. I mean, it's kind of like Necromantic 2, a geriatric Necromantic 2, the director likes to say. Uh, it, it's just this... It's not so much an obsession or a lust for the dead, which is what you're dealing with in Necromantic and Necromantic 2, but just absolution and love. Somebody is so used to their daily life, somebody's so used to their situation that there is no more comfort. This is the final comfort. And it's just like having an idol. You know, people, Christians, people. Christians like to keep statues and crosses of Christ nailed on his death and his most... Uh, horrifying moment of suffering around their house. It's like a decoration. Hey, it's my Lord and Savior there. He's dying painfully. You know, not like Jesus high-fiving a kid going across the crosswalk or scooping ice cream, but no, here's our Lord and Savior nailed to the cross dead. It's just this ghastly, uh, morose, horrifying reminder like you should be afraid. You need to be afraid. You have to be afraid. There is no fear, man. There, there absolutely isn't. Let's quote Bill Hicks here. It's just a ride. It's just a ride. You can buy the ticket. You can take off at any time you want to. You can stop the ride whenever you want to. But it's just a ride. But for Iris, that was her entirety. She didn't have anything else, so she can't let go. You can't just push it away. And that's her perspective, that there's something at least in the comfort of nothing. And it just wraps this whole production into an exquisite, grotesque bow. But at the biggest point, I think it's showing you there's nothing to be afraid of. The mundane, drab nature of life is nothing to be afraid of. We all feel, we all hurt, we all die, we all live, we all cry, we all love. The whole motion is the doing. Death is certain, life is not. So you can go through everything knowing that at the end it's mundane and you're just like the stars, you're just like the trees, you're just like everything living on this earth. You will die. You will perish. And off this earth, the universe, the stars, space, one day our sun will completely go into itself and suck everything living around into it. It will become a giant black hole. Who knows? I mean, a million years, a long time from now, it's going to die. There's no fear in that. You, just like everything else, will experience everything. And that's one of the things I don't think most people realize. Your emotions, your feelings. You experience everything that everyone does. All of us just take it in differently. It's the perspective. It's the ideals, the ideas, these pictures that are presented to us. And what makes Morris County remarkable and what makes it a unique 
journey into not just filmmaking but viewing and taking art differently is the portrayal of life and death is the hands you're in you're you are given this very cynical look into life none of these things none of the events that are shown in morris county are really positive but at the same time none of them are uh, incredibly negative either you are shown almost a blank idea of life and death and you can take it incredibly negative you can take it as a very cynical morose horrible thing but it truly is just an idea of rebirth with each awful thing that happens something else has to come from that like i suggested with the second movie there are second feature in this anthology there are two different ways that you can even understand and take how it ends you can take it the happier route or you can be a bit more pessimistic like me and turn it into well it's just going to get worse from here which moves us to Matthew Garrett's most recent film, 2010's Beating Hearts, something I had to watch two or three times. I, had, I wasn't quite sure what I was seeing, and I referenced this a while ago. That's something very unique about Garrett as a director. He truly has the ability to, almost like a Rubik's Cube, just change that color enough that you don't know where the next turn is going to go, to change that you know, piece of the puzzle just enough to confuse you and throw you off and to allow you to question your thoughts and your perception and make something out of it, which, like Akira Kurosawa, is just genius storytelling. It's being able to take a story and format it and show you what you need to see or what will allow imagination to, uh, you know, put a little seed in your head and you come up with something worse or more innocent. It, taking us back to the second feature of Morris County, my favorite. That's really why it's my favorite, though, because it's like one of those finish-your-own-stories. You know, get to chapter 6, turn to page 24, or page 48. You can make it what you want to. Now, isn't that goddamn ingenuity when it comes to art? You can mold two concepts and two thoughts into somebody's mind and allow them to completely wander and go something else. But Beating Hearts, uh, man, it's... I don't know. I mean, to me, I thought... uh. Is that really what I think it is? And then I watched it again. I don't know. Is that really what I think it is? And then I watched it again. I don't know. But I really think it's what I think it is. And it still deals on the same cynical subject matter of the mundane banality of life, the morose nature of death and life. It's just a... I don't know. I, I use these terms a lot, but there is just a beauty in cynic and sardonic nature. There's something... You know, it's almost like the really brash, awful H.G. Lewis that everything is, is tongue-in-cheek. Everything is more... <sighs> Everything's a joke. Everything really at its nature is a joke. And that's life. You can take it all completely seriously. It'll probably give you a heart attack, though. You're going to have high blood pressure. Just relax. It's just a ride. It's not a joke, but it can be. It doesn't have to all be dredge. It doesn't have to all be working the same job every day. It doesn't have to be hiding who you are. And I'm not saying, go out and tell the world whatever. Everyone has a reason. That's the thing. Every person has a reason for their actions, their reactions, their thoughts, why they're afraid. Fear is the mind killer, man. Let's go back to Dune. Everything always goes back to Frank Herbert. It's all up to you. It's all in your head. It's all in the air. It's all whatever, right? I mean, the point is you live and then you die. Just like everything. Maybe your return to the 
ether realm and you come back as something else or maybe your energy can never be absolutely destroyed. But the one thing that is absolutely true and certain is everybody goes through it. Every single thing. The birds, the bees, the bugs. And at some point, it all returns. It all goes back, right? It all becomes the nothing and everything and the something and the mighty and the winds and the trees and the air. But it's all the same. It's all boring and it's all fun and it's all adventurous. It, what, what matters is the way you direct it. What matters is the way you expose it. What matters is the way that you present it. And the way that the mundane, boring nature of life and death was presented and shown and we were allowed to see by Matthew Garrett is not only provocative and fun, but it's well done. And it's connected by the common thread that connects absolutely all of us. doesn't matter if you're black or white. It doesn't matter where you're from or what time zone you're in. We're all connected by life, and we're all connected by death. We all come, and we all go. Morris County from 2009, written and directed by Matthew Garrett. Check it out. Let's give this bad boy a rating here. So, a quick reminder of how we rate things on Death by DVD. We like to call it our cult point systems. You got four stars. These are the same four stars you would rate The Godfather, The Exorcist, Citizen Kane. We have to remember in the initial four-star ratings that this is what it takes to rate anything. You can't just say, I really love The Toxic Avenger, so I'm going to put it above everything else. No, we all have to rate it at the same thing. I'm not going to go out of my way to do a pissing contest with Roger Ebert, but I tend to rate exploitation and horror a little bit higher than I would... uh, more normie movies, I guess you could say. Cult points, on the other hand, it, it's what it sounds like. It's amounting how cultastic, I guess you could say, this movie is. Uh, one of the greatest examples we like to use on the show is Horror House on Highway 5. One star for cult points. So, that in reminder, Morris County, two and a half stars for cult points. Check it out. I deeply enjoyed it. Go out of your way, find this. It's something It's something different. Expose yourself. Find a different thought process. And hey, it's not all bad. Death isn't that scary. It's probably scarier living than it is dying. I mean, dying's just a second of your time. Living is all of it. So instead of focusing on the negative and worrying about the one thing that definitely happens to every single one of us, all of us, which is death, focus on the good part, living. Make something like Morris County, or check out Morris County, or even more fun, drive to Morris County, New Jersey, Um, which I don't think any of this movie was shot in. So I don't know how much fun you might have there, but if you've got friends and family, it could be a hoot. Call your uncle from Morris County, New Jersey. See how he's doing. So if you learned anything from this show, one, don't be afraid of death. It happens to us all. Two, if Greg Goodsell says something's weird, it's weird. Three, if you don't know who Greg Goodsell is, you do now. Google him. Check him out. Make yourself familiar with one of the, to me, I guess I'm just going to kiss some butt here. To me, uh, really one of my favorite writers. I I love Greg Goodsell's prose. I love Greg Goodsell's words. When he says something, I definitely pay attention to it. And I hope you do, too. And finally, Morris County is a fucking pretty good movie. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. 
Morris County, 2009. I enjoyed it. I hope you do, too. This has been Death by DVD. The ashtray is full, and the bottle is empty. We'll be back. change it anytime we want. It's only a choice. No effort, no work, no job, no savings of money. A choice right now between fear and love. The eyes of fear want you to put bigger locks on your door, buy guns, close yourself off. The eyes of love instead see all of us as one. Here's what we can do to change the world right now to a better ride. Take all that money we spend on weapons and defense each year and instead spend it feeding, clothing, and educating the poor of the world, which it would many times over, not one human being excluded, and we can explore space together, both inner and outer, forever in peace. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.